So uh, if you're new, uh, we have, are walking through 1 Timothy throughout the summer, uh, and this has been a fun book so far. Uh, today in 1 Timothy, I get the privilege of talking about women and Bible's views on women and women's roles in the church, etc. okay? I know that for me, it is a grave danger as a male to get up here and to begin to talk about women, all right? I just I understand that. So I have two requests before we even get started, all right? One, uh, please stay with me throughout the whole sermon, and I mean that. Um, Some of this stuff is going to take a little bit of time to explain, and if you get lost early on or if you get offended too early and don't hear the end of it, then you're going to miss some of the beauty, all right, that we actually can see throughout this. And so really what we should be doing is probably taking three or four weeks on this topic, and instead we're only taking one week and kind of trying to cover it as a whole. So don't also get mad at me if I'm over five minutes on my sermon time, all right? Um, But also, ladies, don't pull out mace or throw a brick at me or anything, okay? Um, that's my request, all right? Matter of fact, if you have a brick, like in your purse or something, you should just leave because that's kind of weird. And you'd probably be the type of person that would throw it at me anyway, all right? So don't do that. Um, secondly, okay, uh, many of you may not know me well enough to uh, believe this statement, um, so you'll just have to take it as true, I guess. Uh, but I have a very, very deep and a very genuine heart to see ladies find their true worth and their true value in Christ. And so I'm actually very passionate about this topic here because I think that ladies Ladies have been mistreated in a lot of ways throughout human history. I don't think that the Lord was mistaken when he gave me a wife, two females as daughters, two female roommates, and though we don't have any animals, if we did, they'd probably be female too, right? Like God has surrounded me within that. And so I don't think that's a mistake. I I genuinely do want God to move in phenomenal ways in ladies' lives. And I think that what the gospel has to say to women in particular is a very beautiful thing. And it's hard to see it in texts like this, but I hope that you stick with me and we're able to see it today. All right? Two people, both men. All right, so here we go. All right, if you have your Bibles, grab them. Uh, We'll be in 1 Timothy. If you don't have a Bible, there's some under every second and third chair somewhere around you. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, please take and keep that as our gift to you. We want you to have the word to be able to read it during the week. And so uh, please feel free to take that home with you. That is your Bible from now on. Um, You can also follow along on your smartphone. If you have the YouVersion app, underneath the events section, type in the Well Austin, and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, All the scripture we'll be reading today, which will actually be a lot, will all be there. You can also take notes on some of that, and so we would encourage you to do that. Uh, If you don't have the YouVersion app, you can actually just take this link, put it right into your browser, and you'll be able to follow along that way. Uh, We want your eyes on the word, okay? We say that every week, so whether it's physical or on your phone or whatever it may be, we want you to see that this isn't just me up here talking and just saying things, that this is the word of the Lord, and we want to submit to it as part of our act of worship to God. All right, so let's go. First Timothy chapter two, and we are going to pick it up in verse eight. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling, and likewise that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Okay, notice, firstly, a couple of things that Paul is doing here, okay? Uh, one, he calls men to pray and not in anger or quarrels, all right? Why in the world does Paul just kind of randomly mention anger and quarrels? Like, there are so many other things that, hey, men, I want you to pray and to lift holy hands 
and do it with passion or and and do it with fervor or and make sure you confess your sin like there are so many things that Paul could have said so why is it that he highlighted anger and quarrels Paul is going to be speaking in generalities all throughout this whole section and I think that this is actually one of them we are going to hone in on this verse right now but I just want to draw your attention to this is a pretty big generality right men ought to be holy they ought to be spiritual they ought to seek the Lord and they should reject some sin that is very easy for them as men to fall into. One of the sins that men easily falls into is anger and fighting or quarreling, or we're going to use the word uh, overly dominant or overdominance. It's really, really easy for men to kind of fall in line with that. So Paul comes off the bat and says, hey, men, don't do that. Be holy. Kill this sin that would be so easy for you to fall into. When men are portrayed in our culture, they're either portrayed as imbeciles who, who don't know how to properly wash behind their ears and might burn the house down if the lady leaves, right? Like they don't know how to open up the blinds on, on, on a curtain without the woman around. Or they're kind of portrayed as this like ignorant, brutish beast that just drinks beer and cusses at his friends and eats meat and kind of beats his chest and maybe beats a woman when he needs to, Right? Isn't that the two overgeneral kind of stereotypes of our culture? All you got to do is watch some movies to see. They tend to hit on kind of one or the other. And Paul is saying, hey, don't be like the second. The reason that we overgeneralize is because that's our perception of what man is. And so Paul says, hey, don't be like that. Don't be angersome. Don't, don't be quarrelsome. Don't be overly dominant. Women, likewise, Paul says, need to be holy. They should be seeking Jesus. One of women's main temptations is her what? Her beauty, right? Her beauty. Is it not, ladies? Don't a lot of you guys struggle with your beauty? This is one of your main struggles. Now, some of you, maybe you have overcome this and praise the Lord for that. But for most of us, uh, not us, y'all, as women, all right, I know that there's a temptation there to be continually thinking about that. You're not skinny enough or you're too tall or you're too small or your legs are too big or skinny. Your hair doesn't seem to cooperate. Matter of fact, you often dress and put on makeup and do things for other people around you, like the girl at the coffee shop or the girl in your office that she can see you and admire you as beautiful, even more than you do your own husband or boyfriend at times, right? You, you, you wish your forehead was smaller, your hips were wider, your feet are thinner, your eyes are brighter, and go on and on and on and on, right? Many of you struggle with something. There, there always seems to be something wrong. No matter, no matter what culture tells us, no matter uh, what you may look like on the outside, there seems to be the ability to fix it somehow. And the unfortunate thing is that men sometimes don't help within this because they continue to perpetuate this negative, uh, uh, sinful tendency to, to be thinking about your beauty so much. But many of you struggle with this idol called beauty, and, and, and this is one of the, the two temptations that Paul's going to highlight in this passage as an idolatrous struggle for women. So instead of believing what God says about you, that you're fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knows what he's doing, that he created you, that he crafted you in the womb, that he sees you as beautiful in Christ, despite all of that, we don't believe that. And we begin to try to fix ourselves up in all these ways, and, and we think about it over and over. Uh, let, me, let me just say it plainly, Okay. Uh, this is the first place you're going to have to refrain from throwing things at me, okay, ladies? Um, if you spend more time working on your face than you do working on your soul, that's idolatry, and you need to repent of that, okay? That is you over, overdoing beauty. That's you caring more about beauty than your soul because, you ready? You're going to get old, and you're going to get wrinkly, and beauty will fade, all right? 
Like, I'm being serious, right? Like, like even if you look great, even if somehow you're able to kind of overcome what most people fall into and in your 50s and 60s, you're still looking great, at some point you're going to physically pass away. And if you spent all this time trying to make your soul beautiful, but your soul, or your, your, your physical beautiful, but your soul is ugly, then what does that matter? You can be as beautiful uh, as a sunset on the mountaintop overlooking the ocean, but if your soul is like a Midwestern city after a tornado, what is it for? What is that for? What do you gain in that? And so Paul says, look, like, like you need to be careful for this. Don't allow your, your physical to overdominate you. Overcome this idol, right? Now, listen, the, the text isn't telling you to not care about your bodies or your appearance at all, okay? That's not what that's saying. That would be the, the other extreme because Christians like to swing the pendulum extreme. And so we say, oh, well, I won't care at all, right? The Bible isn't calling you to look like scallywags that don't know how to use a brush, all right? <laughs> Um, in, in fact, I would actually even argue that that's kind of sinful too, because you're actually created in the image of God. And so we should reflect that in our own individual ways in the way that the Lord has made us. And so I would actually say that's a negative pendulum swing too. But I'm saying don't waste your life idolizing over this. Even more, don't wear clothes that would tempt your brothers in Christ. That's what he's saying there. So at the time, temptation for men was braided hair and pearls. The reason why is because the, the cult prostitutes, that's what they would wear, and they would try to allure men with that. And so when women began to dress like the cult prostitutes, even within the church, what it does is it makes men begin to think about sex and begin to desire you, not for your person, but for your body only. And Paul says, hey, just avoid that. Like, love your brothers well enough to, to avoid that, to help them in their sinful tendency, right, to, 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 to shy away from from that. And so ladies, don't allow your physical beauty, no matter how beautiful you may be, to be what allures men to yourself. Allow your spirituality to be that. Be so, so in love with Jesus, such a beast in the gospel, that that's what draws men, that, that that's what you're focused on, that that's what's important. Okay, so that's Paul's main point. He has his two overarching things here. Men, don't be dominant. Don't be uh, uh, overly dominant. And, and ladies, don't, don't allow the idol of beauty to overwhelm you, to consume you. Okay, here comes the fun part. You ready? Verse 11. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Help the Lord. <laughs> All right. What is Paul saying here? Okay. Should a woman never teach? Was Eve and thereby all women just so dumb that the serpent came to her because he knew that he could deceive her instead of him? Because like, that's what some people have took this statement to mean. Should we have avoided 1 Timothy so we don't have to teach this? Maybe, all right? But what is the relevance for us today? Okay, what, what, how, how do we take this and apply it into our life, okay? Uh, let me tackle a couple of things that I know that we can't do with the text. There are some things that we just absolutely cannot do, and then I'm going to highlight the general direction that I think the text is going in. Firstly, you cannot say that Paul hated women, that he was like some sexist snob or something, and he just didn't like women and said, women, you need to shut up and just stay in your place. You can't do that with the text, okay? First of all, notice that at the start of the text, he says, let a woman learn, dot, 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 okay? You do understand that in that culture, women were not allowed to learn the word of God. 
Only men were allowed to learn. And then if they so desired, they can pass that knowledge on to their women at home because women were seen as literally lesser than men. And so when Paul comes along and says, hey, actually, let a woman learn, that's a really huge thing. That's why when we see uh, Mary uh, at Jesus' feet listening to the teaching, that's why that text, it's not like a crazy text because Mary's listening and Martha's working. There is truth in that. But it's crazy because Mary's listening, what is she doing? Why is she not in the kitchen with Martha? Is what the high, and what happens is Christianity explodes these very terrible cultural norms that were going on. So Paul says, hey, let, let a woman learn, which would have been controversial in and of itself. We may not have even gotten past that point if we were first century Jews, all right? Matter of fact, a Jewish rabbi during the time of Jesus said this, better for the Torah to fall into the fire and be burned than for it to fall into the hands of a woman. Does that sound like Paul? <laughs> All right, is that what Paul's saying here? And he says, hey, like let a woman learn, right? This is a good thing. And then as you look at Paul and you begin to see the rest of his scripture, Paul says that women can prophesy in church. Paul says that there are women evangelists. Matter of fact, Paul has tons of women in his ministry team that do missionary work with Paul, sometimes one-on-one with somebody else. The reader of Romans, when you wrote a book to somebody and you gave it to them, they would go deliver it. And in order that you would know it's authentic, they would open it in front of the, uh, the, the congregation and they themselves would read it. So you knew like the pastor wasn't like trying to change something. So if somebody came in and gave me a letter, then I could say whatever I want. But if they came in and they read the letter, you would know it was genuine. The, the reader of Romans, the most theologically astute book in the whole New Testament, had a woman's name and was likely a woman. And so that's why we see scripture readers today be women. That's why there's a lot of places that we see there's a lot of liberty in the text. So Paul just can't hate women, <laughs> All right, like he's, he's not just a, a chauvinist in some way, okay? Even more, he says things like this. Go to Romans chapter 5. In Romans chapter 5, verses 14 through 19, this is a little bit of a long text, but listen to some of this. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who were, whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespasses, who's that one man there? Adam. Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. Who's that one man? For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man, who's that? Trespass, death reigned through that one man, who's that? Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass, a singular trespass, led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification for all men. For by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so that by the one man's obedience, many may be made righteous. So Paul doesn't even talk about Eve here, 
right? Like if you could actually go back and kind of flip human history, and let's say that men were kind of the second class citizens and women were the, uh, the, the, the people who were more highly esteemed throughout human history, a man would read this text if there was like a, a masculinity movement going on in America right now and say, see, Paul's a sexist. He blames all of human problem on Adam. Eve was there too. Matter of fact, Eve's the one that ate. And it would be really easy to flip the script, would it not? All right, three people shaking their head. All right, stay with me. Okay, it'd be really easy to flip the script, right? Like here, Paul says, look, it's only Adam's fault. Adam is the sinner. Adam is the one that transgressed. Adam is the, 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 the problem of why humanity is the way that it is today. But in Timothy, he talked about it being Eve's fault. So what is going on here? Is Paul just confused? All right, is, is he just a really bad writer? Is, 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 did his theology change over time maybe? Like, did, did he first think this, and now he's thinking this? Paul, in focusing on Adam, is trying to stress a point, okay? And then in 1 Timothy, Paul, zooming in on Eve, is also trying to st- uh, stress a point. What Paul is doing in focusing on Adam in Romans 5 and on Eve in 1 Timothy 2 is he's trying to create a theological distinctive. He's trying to highlight something for us so that we can see deeper into that truth. You tracking with that? All right, more on that in a second. Secondly... What you cannot do with this Timothy text is make it into a cultural-only argument. Say, oh, that was just for that culture at that time. That, that, that was just, things have changed now. See, what was going on in that culture was one, two, three, four, five, right? Like, we cannot do that with the text because Paul is not just speaking to that current culture, but to all of us. So why isn't just this cultural? Why isn't this something that we uh, can just kind of sweep under the rug today? One, if you're willing to make a cultural exception, what's to stop you making cultural exceptions from other places in Scripture that you just don't agree with? Like, just because you don't agree with it, or it seems to be saying something that you don't like off the forefront, does that just allow you to say, oh, it's just cultural, I'm just going to change this? Or could it be that our culture isn't 100% right in everything that we believe, think, and do? Like, are we the pinnacle culture? Is there nobody better than us? Didn't we just pray for this atrocity that happened last night? We're not the pinnacle culture. We have things that are wrong with us, too. So you can't just make it a cultural argument because it kind of grates against the things that you may normally think. Scripture does not submit to culture, rather the culture submits to Scripture. And anywhere where we would desire for that not to be the case, you may have found a very easy source of idolatry in your heart. Whenever you say, "Ah, I I don't really want to believe that piece of Scripture, it's probably a source of idol for you, a place where you are not worshiping the true God, but rather yourself or a sin. Okay. Secondly, this isn't just cultural because call Paul, uh, Paul calls upon creation to make his point. So Paul doesn't talk about the culture. He goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. And not only all the way back to Adam and Eve, he talks about the forming of Adam and Eve, which actually happened before the fall. So you can't just say that this was a product of the fall. Paul actually goes pre-fall and says, hey, look at what's going on here. Adam was formed and then Eve. So it can't just be cultural. Well, then what's going on then? Does Paul hate women? Is scripture chauvinistic in some weird way? If we can't pass this off on cultural, what's going on? What, what options do we have left? Well, let's go back to Genesis, since that's what Paul's calling on, and actually walk through what Paul's doing in Genesis, okay? And so, in Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning, all right, we see this beautiful truth. And one of the things that we see is that Paul knows his Old Testament really, really well. And so he knows that women cannot have more or less value or significance than men. He knows that we are all equal. And he knows that because he talks about the forming. And here's the forming right here. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. 
So God created man, Adam, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God created male and female, both intimately, I might add, and breathed into them the breath of life. This is an important doctrine called the Imago Dei, which is just Latin for the image of God, that every single one of us in here has the image of God dwelling inside of us. There is something about you that actually highlights the beauty, the value, the worth of God, the Father in heaven, of Jesus, the Son of the Holy Spirit. There is something dwelling in every single one of us that's actually divine in his very nature. And though many times can be false, fallen, often can be redeemed. And we see the beauty of God through this. So uh, equality does not mean having equal value, all right? Or I'm sorry, equality does not mean uh, being the same, sorry. It means that having equal value. So it's not just us being the exact same. We're very different. What it actually means, what equality actually means is us having the same value, okay? You see that even in culture. Like, do you not? Like, like is the, the black culture better than the Asian culture? right? Is, is the Hispanic culture better than the white culture? Is the mixed culture the best culture? Yes, but besides that, okay, culture isn't better or worse, right? It is what it is, and what culture does is it shows us some of who God is when we all come together. That's one of the things I love about the church is the diversity of the church is that through all this diversity, you're actually able to see a greater picture of who God is, and so the same is true with male and female. They are different, That is a good thing because in their differences, when they come together, be it in a friendship or in a marriage or in a church or whatever it may be, we actually see a greater picture of who God is when they get together collectively. All you got to do is go on a couple of men's retreats or women's retreats to know this is true. After being around guys for a couple of days, it's like great, but it stinks. right? And you're like, man, women really, like, this is really great. Or whatever it may be, right? Like, like there's a difference between us, but it's a beautiful thing when we come together. And so the genders reflect the Imago Dei more fully. This is a beautiful thing, and it's an extremely heavy responsibility and privilege that we all carry. Let me say that again. The Imago Dei is a beautiful thing, and it's an extremely heavy and a beautiful privilege that we all carry. You are supposed to be an image bearer of God in your own God-ordained ways. And so we see that we have equal value even from the very beginning in Genesis 1. So what Paul is probably hitting on in this idea of Timothy is actually this idea of order, which is why he says uh, Adam was formed first and then Eve. So remember, all throughout 1 Timothy, he's trying to put what is chaotic into order. That's the, 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 the title of our sermon series even, Chaos to Order. And so in chapter 1, he says, I want you to think correctly. Don't be chaotic like these people kind of twisting doctrine in all their little weird ways. I want you to think correctly. Chapter 2, he says, hey, I want you to to understand government correctly. Chapter 3, he says, hey, we need people leading the church correctly. Chapter 4, he says, we need to live correctly. Chapter 5, he says, hey, uh, we need to have these systems and programs in place that we may administer correctly. And on and on and on. Paul's talking about having the correct order within the life of the church. And so Paul is probably thinking about order and structure here. Okay. Secondly, and really quickly, uh, we're only talking about the church, by the way. So this same thing that I'm about to uh, uh, expound from in the scripture uh, is not uh, mentioning like government or business or other places in life. We're only talking about the church from this text because Paul's writing to Timothy, who's the pastor over a church. And the reason it's about the church is because the church is the household of God. You'll see this phrase all throughout 1 Timothy. The church is supposed to reflect a family. Matter of fact, next week when we talk about elders, that's why it's so important that an elder leads his family well, because the family 
family is the house or, or the, the household of God as a representation of a family. We are a family together. And so Paul's idea of order stems from here within the church. Let's keep reading. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, jump over to verse 18. So here we zoom into the creation account, okay? Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken out of the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. What Paul says is that Adam was formed first and then Eve. That's what he tells us in 1 Timothy, right? Adam was formed first and then, and then Eve was formed, which we see that true here in the creation account. In the forming of first, the, the, the first forming, what Paul is automatically hitting on, which is true throughout scripture, is that Adam then had an intrinsic responsibility to be the leader of that first family because he was formed first. We don't really have time to go into all of that and all the details that lie behind that, but that is true. That's why there was such responsibility on the firstborn son all throughout the Old Testament because that was the idea of this. So uh, men are responsible to be the leaders of their families and wives are supposed to submit to their husband's leadership. If this word sounds dirty to you, I would encourage you to go back. About 10 weeks ago, we did a sermon on marriage, and you'll see that that word is not dirty, but it's actually a very beautiful and profound tool when used correctly and when the man's doing what he's supposed to do. And so you can see it's actually not ugly, but beautiful. And so he says, hey, within the church, this is supposed to be the same thing is what Paul's kind of hitting on. Eve was supposed to be the helper in the very first family, which is why Paul goes back to the first family because he's saying the church is the family of God. So let me show you the first family. And and then draw analogies to the family of God today. Eve was supposed to be the helper, supposed to be submitted to Adam. But what happened? What happened in the Genesis account? Paul says that she was deceived and she became a transgressor. What does that look like? Go to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Minus the fact that sin entered into humanity here, and we have the fall, the, the, the most tragic thing that's happened in all of Scripture is what we just read. Minus that, what is Eve doing here? What is Eve doing throughout this whole account? She's taking the lead. Is she not? She's the one talking to the serpent. 
She's the one exhorting the word of God. She's the one that's saying, no, God said this. God didn't say this. She's the one that looks at her husband and says, here, take and eat this too. She's exercising authority or she's leading Adam who was standing there with her in his passivity, which we'll get to in a second. But this is why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2 that Eve was a transgressor. Now, uh, it's not because she was more easily deceived. Paul is just highlighting that she's the one that was taking the lead or the authority here in this relationship. This is why the book of Romans blames Adam, by the way, because Adam was supposed to be the leader, but he was passive and didn't do anything about it. He was supposed to be the one leading the family. Matter of fact, Adam is still held responsible because the burden of leadership did not get moved off of him just because he didn't do anything. So Paul says, look, this is actually Adam's fault that sin entered into the world because he was supposed to be the leader. But in 1 Timothy, he's highlighting that the woman was actually the one exercising authority. She was actually the one that was leading. So stay with me here, okay? We're in the middle of a deep, deep, deep trail, all right? If you leave now, you're not going to find your way back to the trailhead, okay? Fast forward now, Genesis 3.16. This is after the fall. Got to the woman, he said... I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Okay, so here we have women's punishment for their sin. One will be pain and childbearing, which let me tell you, there's a lot of pain and childbearing. Okay, I've never had kids, but I can watch and go, oh, yikes, Lord, please come quickly. Okay, but secondly, look at the other phrase that he says here. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. What's going on here? How is this a part of the punishment? This word uh, uh, desire can be translated as control. And the word rule can be translated as overly dominates. Here's the crazy thing. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Paul, or God's talking to Cain. And he says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Listen to these words. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's the exact same phrase. Sin will try to control you, Cain, but you have to dominate it. You have to crush it. You have to destroy it. You have to rid it from your life. So go back to Genesis 3.16, ladies. Your desire will be for control, to rule, to exercise authority over your husbands. But do you know what he will tend to do? Rule. He'll dominate, he'll crush, he'll control. He'll try to rule over you in an aggressive and an overly dominant type of way. And so has been the plight of human history from Genesis 3.16 all the way on. Men have rejected and they have dominated, they've controlled, they've tried to paint women as second-class citizens. And every single time that we think things may be turning for the better, something happens and it just gets destroyed for the worse. When Paul's writing in 1 Timothy, you do realize that women at that time had way more liberty and freedom than we do in our time today. Most people think that like we're brand new in our culture. There's nothing new under the sun. All right. And at that time, there was a temple in Ephesus where Timothy was the pastor called the Temple of Diana. It was a woman God that everybody came and worshiped. And at the Temple of Diana, there were only lady priests there. There were no male priests. And so women were the spiritual authority over the men in that culture in a lot of ways. But what happened? War broke out. They called on the men to fight because they're physically stronger than ladies most of the time. They ended up winning that war by power. And with their power, they sort of started destroying some of these temples and with it, the women too. And they subjected women again to a second-class citizen. And we hit that bad cycle all over again. The men got back in charge. They dominated. 
So then what's Paul's remedy then? Because we see this is a product of the fall. The dominance or the control or the crushing of women by men is a product of the fall. It's not a good thing. What is Paul's remedy? He says men should lead the church, the family of God. And in Ephesians chapter 5, he says men should actually lead their own families. If you look at the first Timothy text again, this is why he says women should not exercise authority over a man in the church. This is why Paul calls for male elders as well, which we'll get to next week. Now, you may say, see, I knew the Bible was chauvinistic. <laughs> All right? like, how, is, how is that the correct response? Like, I, I knew Scripture was against women in some ways. It oppresses women. Okay? But what you would be doing in that statement is you would be mistaking leadership and roles as having greater or lesser value very simply based on the role. You tracking with that? You would be saying the leader is more important than anybody else. And that's just not true, biblically speaking. Now, in our society, we call that true, but our society's wrong on that. The leader is not more important than anybody else. All of us have equal and the exact same uh, 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 value. The leader just has a different role. You'd be completely missing the definition of what leadership is if you think that that means that men are therefore better than women because they're called to be the leaders. You'd actually be being just like the disciples. Look at Luke chapter 22. In Luke chapter 22, verse 24, it says, A dispute arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. Who's going to have more value, Lord? Who's going to be better in the kingdom? Who has more worth? Who has more purpose? Who has more honor? And Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves. The leader is the one that lays down his life for the sake of others. He is the servant. He's not better or worse. He just has a different role. Let me give you a a practical example of this, okay? As Christians, we believe in the doctrine of the Trinity, right? The Trinity exists that there's uh, one God that exists in three persons, the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. All of the Godhead is equal. None is greater or more important than the other, right? You believe that as Christians, okay? None of them is more important than the other. Yet, within the Trinity, the Son submits to the Father, and the Holy Spirit submits to the Son and to the Father. There's submission. The Father isn't more important, but yet the Son submits to the Father. So is the Son lesser because he submits? Is he not as valuable? Is he not as worthy of our worship because he's the submitter to the Father? Right? Jesus isn't less worthy of worship and praise, is he? Like, why would we even talk about Christ then? If you think roles make you inferior or less, then you have to say by that definition that Jesus is less. You have to reject Christianity because Jesus submits to the Father you'd have to say, I don't believe in this. But Jesus submits as one of his roles. So why does this even matter then, you might ask? Okay, we, why make a big deal out of this? Why not just kind of highlight this and just throw it under the rug and just keep moving on, all right? I'm going to try to be as gentle as I can, okay? But men, if you've been zoning out, here's your time to zone back in, okay? In Paul's creation argument in 1 Timothy, he also alludes to Adam, Adam was passive during Eve's authoritative rebellion. You say, how does he allude to Adam? He doesn't even talk about this dude. 
It was clear in Paul's theology that Adam was supposed to be the leader, but he's not even mentioned in this whole creation argument except for the forming idea that Paul highlights. Adam was formed, and then Eve went on and took the lead instead of Adam. Listen to me very clearly, man, okay? We have two very natural sin proclivities, things that we can easily lean into. One of them, Paul mentioned in the beginning of our text, is overdominance. And you see that resurge in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. You will try to be dominant. You will try to be authoritative. You will try to rule and crush everything around you. Look at me. Ah, All right? Can be one of the things that we lean into. The other is the latter part here, and it's passivity. Men tend to dominate or be passive. And both are grave, grave sins. Where women lead and exercise authority over a man, men either try to re-dominate her and say, you can't have authority over me, and they crush, or they just don't do anything. And they just sit back, and they don't do jack. And so is the problem with a lot of our culture today. The men not doing anything. He's not fulfilling his end of the responsibilities, which we'll get to a little bit next week, okay? But unfortunately, some of you guys can see this truth. Maybe in your parents' marriage, maybe in your marriages even, where the man decides not to fulfill his end of the leadership responsibility, things begin to get chaotic. The men are supposed to lead physically. Things go from ordered and structured and good to chaotic when men begin to act in their sin. The same is true in the church, by the way, which is my understanding of why Paul is writing this letter. When there is a woman who is an elder or who is the main exerciser of authority over the church, I want you to go and I want you to look at that church and the leadership that they have. The leadership is usually 80 to 90% women. Why is that the case? Because the man, if they're overly dominant, they realize they can't dominate her, so they just leave and go somewhere else and they act like boys somewhere else. Or they just get passive. And they go, I'm cool with her lead, whatever. That means I don't got to do anything. And they just sit back and they don't do anything. And so then, then the woman is able to, hey, charge up the lady and say, hey, let's go, let's go, let's go. And they respond. And man, praise the Lord for that. But 80 and 90% of the people leading are the women and the men are doing nothing, just sitting on their hands. That's why Paul says, look, it's important that this order is, uh, is here. Paul has as much to do with the man here in this section as he does to the woman. Because men are prone to sin, ladies, you've got to help us out. In your submission to the family and in your submission in the church, it's a tool that allows us to step up and to do what we're supposed to be doing, to lead. Which, let me rephrase your definition again, that means sacrificial service, laying down our life, dying for the sake of you. Your submission is a tool for that. You may say, well, that's not fair. (laughs) Why do I have to help? Listen, because you're sinful too. All right. The men also need to help you in your sinful tendencies. In our sacrificial leadership and service, we help you to overcome sinful tendencies. One of them being the sinful tendency that most of you struggle with, not just beauty that we talked about, but control. Your desire, your control, you want to control. And you'll control and try to control and kind of control. And whenever things get chaotic, you get nervous and you get, you get anxious. And you control so much that you don't even trust the Lord the only one who's ultimately in control. In us, doing what Paul has called us to do, we actually help each other in a lot of very beautiful ways. And so how does this apply to the church then? First of all, this is simply just for the highest level of leadership. Paul doesn't allow the women to rule in the role of elder or to be an authoritative teacher or an authoritative communicator over men. What the text means after that, there's really a lot of liberty in that. 
There's a lot of liberty as to how we should actually handle it. There's actually a great article that came out a couple of weeks ago uh, by a woman who's a phenomenal communicator. I've listened to some of her stuff. She's exceptional. And she wrote an article about how she takes this verse and applies it into real life. And I actually think she went a step further than she even had to go. But she said, I'd rather be careful to the text than disobey the word of the Lord because I have a gift that he gave me anyway. Right? It's a very, very good article. I'll put it in your U version. And so if you want to go look at that, it's in there. Okay. Um, but this is how she, as, as a great communicator, mind you, actually handles this text. All right. Now, women, okay, stay with me. Don't mishear me in this. We need your leadership in the church. Like, like we need your help. Shoot, uh, the, the scripture reader today was a lady. <laughs> All the worship team right here were ladies, right? The people running our children's and our hospitality in different places in the church are ladies. Like, like, there is a ton of room to work within this, and we need help because in the combination of both men and women together, there's a beauty of God that is portrayed through that. There's a beauty of the creator that we get to see through this. We're doing a preaching and teaching class right now in which two of the people in there are ladies, Why? Because when they preach biblical womanhood and when they preach over our kids, when they preach at conferences, when they do classes themselves and help lead our classes, like we want them to be able to preach and teach. This is a good thing. Paul says, hey, at the highest level of leadership, though, it's got to be the man leading. Because if you don't, the woman will try to control, the man will get passive or overly aggressive, and things start going haywire. Okay? What happens is men, instead of getting behind them, They get their passive, lazy tails, just sit down. And instead of lifting up holy hands in prayer, like it says in verse 8, they just sit on their hands, and they don't do anything. We need this to operate well. Okay, now, there's one verse left, all right? We're almost done. You ready? Last verse. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Yet... She will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. What is Paul doing here? Okay, well, notice, first of all, the switch in the middle of the sentence from she to they. Do you see that? That makes people like Catherine Pessina mad because that's not the greatest grammar in the world, all right? You can't really switch plural nouns and make singular and plural. So what is the Holy Spirit through Paul doing here then? This is beautiful, all right, and I hope you see this. I think that God knew that this would be a hard passage for some of us to swallow. I think he knew that. And a hard to wrestle with. And some of you may still be wrestling with it. That's great. Listen to me. Don't be passive. Like, wrestle with the scripture. It's alive and it's good. And it's good for us. If you wrestle with it, you're going to come out and you're going to, just like Jacob, as he wrestled with the Lord, receive a blessing behind that. So we need to wrestle with scripture, okay? You as a woman may feel like you got the short end of the stick some, that, 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 that there's a lesser role for you or something. And God threw this awesome little nugget in here at the end. So let's put some barbecue sauce on and eat it, all right? <laughs> Are the women's roles really less superior than the man? Remember, Paul's speaking on creation here, and then he ends it here. Well, let's go back to Genesis then real quick. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In the middle of the fall, after Eve had authoritatively rebelled, all right, after the serpent tricked them, after Adam received, look at this. I, the Lord, will put enmity between you and the woman, serpent, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promising that a Messiah will come and will save humanity from their sin. 
that he will redeem all of this. In fact, we call this the first evangelistic message is what we call this. The first time the gospel was preached. In fact, we see uh, our passivity in man or the nakedness that man and woman have displaying their insecurity about their looks, right? Ladies, you are a body figure. They're, Eve was naked and ashamed all of a sudden. She had to cover herself up and, and run and hide. And we see all this sin going on. Man's desire to overly dominate, women's desire to exercise control. Paul says there is one who can save us from all of this. And the author of Genesis actually put it in right there for us. There's only two options for the verse in 1 Timothy chapter 2. One option is that women, by having kids, will be saved. How many of you think that's a viable option? All right. I know a lot of women who have had kids, and that does not mean that they are saved and go to heaven when they die because they had kids, all right? Yes, I know it's hard. That's not the rite of passage, though, all right? That cannot be the option, okay? But Paul says she will be saved. Who is she? Eve. Eve will be saved. Eve, as our federal head, the head of all the women, the one that passed down sin to all of us, she will be saved through what? Through the bearing of a child, through birth, through Jesus Christ. It was through Eve that the Messiah came. Women, do you think your role is less, I think is what this text is saying? Look at me. First of all, none of us would be in here right now if it weren't for you. All right? Until science changes, man cannot have a baby. Only you are allowed to do that. So thank you, mom, and all of you all who birth children. Like, that is a very beautiful thing. But more importantly, look at me. The Savior of the world would not have come if it were not for this. If it were not through the seed of a woman. I think that God knew it would be easy for you to feel less of significance just based off of this passage. Um, hello, you birthed the Messiah. <laughs> This is an unbelievable thing. One of the roles, one of the things that only women can do is, is have babies, right? And so sin entered the world through one man, Adam, Paul says in Romans 5. Sin entered the world through one man, yet through the womb of one woman, we have Jesus who can save all of humanity from their sin. This is a beautiful passage here. And so Jesus, though he had all the authority in the world, exercised it not, but submitted himself to death, even death on the cross, that we may be alive in him. And so I have a little chart here, okay? I'm not going to highlight it a bunch, but I wanted to show the differences of what Paul's doing here, right? We see Paul keep alluding back to creation. And so he says, look, men, don't be angersome and quarrelsome. Don't be overly dominant and try to controlling. Also, don't be passive and actually lead. Ladies, don't worry about your, your beauty and your makeup. Don't allow beauty to be an idol. Ladies, don't try to control and try to, try to uh, exercise authority in that way, thinking that your role is less than you do that. And listen, she will be saved through childbearing, through the birth of a Messiah. This is beautiful. So what are we to do with this passage then? How do we practically apply it? Men, be leaders. Be leaders. Okay? I'm going to talk about elders next week, so I'm going to save that for next week. Okay? Instead of sitting on your hands, lift up holy hands in prayer. Be passionate about the Lord your King who came and saved us from all this mess that we were in. Jesus came and literally lived and literally died that you may be new. Men, lead within that then. This is a beautiful responsibility that we get. We get to operate under the authority of the Messiah to lead the people into the kingdom of God. Man, do something. Get up off your hands. Lead. One of the reasons that this text doesn't make any sense is because for so long, men have been passive and not doing anything. 
And so we've never seen what true and good leadership looks like. Men, when I tell you to lead, by the way, I'm telling you to die. Die to your rights, die to yourself, lay down your life for your wife, for your church, for your community, for your family, die. This is what God gave you as a responsibility to do. Ladies, instead of thinking that your roles are, are lesser or, or thinking about your beauty or your position or your gifts and on and on and on, and on instead of thinking about the your idol, build yourself up in godliness, which as we'll see in a couple of weeks, godliness is Christ. Build yourself up in Christ. Build yourself up in him. Let him give you your worth, not your position in a church. That doesn't give you any worth or value. Let him be the one that speaks worth into you. Let him tell you your value, not your beauty. Let him tell you that that he thinks you're beautiful in him. Let him establish you as his beautiful bride. When we see humanity restored in Genesis 3.15 and humanity fulfilled through the womb of a woman in the Savior Jesus Christ, we see all of us set free. Order is restored from chaos through the seed of a woman. And this is a beautiful thing. And now we can humbly submit to and sacrifice for each other and serve with passion the King of Kings who is worthy of our worship. All right, I love you guys. Ladies, let me say this. Know how freaking much you are loved in Christ. Do you know how freaking much the Lord loves you? I'm about ready to cuss. That's why I got to hold myself back. All right. The Lord loves you so dang much. Believe that. Man, read the word. If this is hard for you to see, that's fine. Let it be hard. But go find the text. Go read the scriptures and see how affectionate Jesus is for you. Don't allow this sorry culture to give you your worth and value through your beauty or through your position. You have already been called valuable by Jesus dying for you. Let that be the truth. I love you guys. Let's pray. God, thank you for the word. Even in passages like this, God, that maybe more difficult to understand. Thank 